0: Hello, I'm Josephine Burton, and welcome to the Dash Arts Podcast, seeing the world through an artistic lens. In 2019, on the eve of the UK's first non-Brexit Day, we hosted a Dash Cafe looking at the experience of living on the border. We brought together a truly European group in London. Berlin-based author, composer, and editor-in-chief of Flaneur magazine, Fabienne Saul, a visual artist, Mariana Gordon, who's originally from Romania, And Norwegian born economist and FT columnist Martin Sambu, with live music from vocalist Loris Saganska, who is originally from Slovakia, and Greek Cypriot guitarist Yakovos Lukas. Together we chatted about visible and invisible borders both across Europe and within countries, a conversation which a year on still feels so relevant. In true Dash style, our live cafe was mixed in media and Fabienne bought images to accompany his conversation, which we'll briefly refer to. We'll put links to Flaneur in the show notes so that you can click through to see more. And now we'll head to Richmix for the conversation. So tonight we're on the border. And when at the end of last year, when I was uh, chatting to our friends at the Goethe Institute about uh, wanting to explore some of these ideas about what it means during the week that we thought at the time we might be leaving the European Union, um, uh, we uh, discussed i discussed with them about how you know ideas and I was gratefully thanks to the Goethe Institute introduced to Fabian who uh, He's joined us from Berlin. Um, but whenever I speak to him, he's always somewhere else around the world. And we'll, we'll hear a little bit more about uh, Fabienne and his flaneur lifestyle, his flaneur happenings uh, shortly. And then we also have Mariana and, and Martin um, who have joined us from different worlds. And we'll hear a little bit more about Mar- Martin's background as a journalist and a writer and Mariana as an artist and a, a writer as well through the evening but because we're on the border and we're thinking about what it means to be on the border and our I guess the most recent experience in in Europe of being on the borders were on being on the borders of the Iron Curtain and 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 the east and we wanted to start off really by thinking about uh, what life was like for those people who lived on the borders um, when we in the 80s the 70s the 80s the 60s the 50s through until it's collapse, and so I was going to start off by asking Mariana, because Mariana has this extraordinary story uh, of having, having kind of escaped through yes. the Iron Curtain. Can yes. you tell us a little bit? Do you want um, to, how, Mariana, yes. how did you end up coming to the UK? Um, in
1: 1979, I was still a teenager, I was 19. And, well, I was born in Romania in Ceau-Ses- under Ceausescu's dictatorship. And I was arrested and charged with high treason and conspiring against the state doing absolutely nothing. I was doing portraits, actually. I was on a working holiday, summer holiday on the Black Sea. Um, but I was drawing portraits of British people, and basically they charged me with Trump up charges because they thought I must have been loaded with money. The British people must have, you know, given me a lot of money for that. And the corrupt police and, the, you know, they all worked together. It was a black market, basically. Um, I didn't do any of that. I didn't touch money. I didn't have anything to do with that. Um, so when the police realized that they got the wrong idiot, they, they sacked me from my job. But I didn't have enough money to go home, so I had to wait two more days to get my first paycheck. And that night, the night I was sacked, the British people there, they organized a strike. For, uh, they, 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 brought the, the, they signed a the petition... Uh, calling for my reinstatement. They say, unfair dismissal, we want Mariana back. She's never done anything wrong. She's given us all these portraits for free. Um, and they, they, they strike. They didn't go to, to their bedrooms. They danced okie-kokie all night in a hotel room. And a posse of some, you know, merry, drunken <laughs> tourists went along the coast uh, collecting signatures and that caused my doom. Basically, the Securitate I said I organized the. Uh, you know, I really, it was very serious. Um, in fact, I um, at the end I was sentenced to thirty years in jail for something I haven't done. But the long story. I mean, I've, I've written. I'm, I'm not here to publicize my book here. But this is the the, the, the book starts begins with my arrest, and it people call me during reading the book they said it's so riveting if i didn't know your life now i wouldn't be able to turn to the next page it was that scary so um in short i was smuggled out by this british people um funny enough the guy who smuggled me out was here you know steve the red he was really left wing and um which i didn't understand what's wrong with him how can he be so you know Unaware of the dangers of communism and what they were doing to us, and, and anyway, that's that's besides the point. They actually successfully he came um, and smuggled me up with a false passport. Okay. But the thing is, we when as we crossed the border and a very dark, very foggy, very Hitchcockian night—I never forget—we we knew that if they're going to suspect us of you know or notice the false passport we were going to drive through that barrier and you know like bonnie and clyde just been shot at and die because it was not worth living a life you know in jail in a communist jail so luckily we made it we made it through and i came here uh well we drove straight here and claimed political asylum so i'm very grateful to be alive and,
0: and you—it's you, an extraordinary story—and um, you—you carried on. So you were already painting portraits.
1: I was, in yes. Romania,
0: and did you? And you? And you? And you carried on when you came to the UK?
1: Of course. I was, oh, she says I'm causing <laughs> um, havoc. I'm
0: holding Mariana's catalogue um,
1: here of some um, of her, of some I'm of a her sculptor, paintings. Yes, I'm a sculptor and I'm a portraitist. Um, have, well, I started the school when I was then, I couldn't imagine. Um, Doing anything else?
0: You were very much. Would you say that your work and your work as an artist is very much a product of your those experiences, that experience of growing up in Romania and coming to the UK as a, as a teenager? Would you
1: say it's affected I, you? I no, it's affected my writing and my filmmaking. Um, my first film, Disorient Express, about EU. Actually, I had no idea what I was doing, but I had something to say about um, EU and the borders and. If you have a chance, it's only a 10 minutes film. It's called Disorient Express. And um, it got the attention. Uh, it was Erasmus Prize for Communication and the Jury Prize in the same competition. And that's very much marked by my experience and my writing and my second book. And what I... And really about, you know, yes, maybe it affects what I think about the arts world, arts market, The you know, the... Politics in art is affected, mm. but my portraits are have
0: not. not. No. So, to, to give us before we before I want to hear Fabian's experience of, uh, of, of, yeah. of of living on borders. But do you do you have memories of how it was arriving arriving in the UK in those first few weeks?
1: Yes, yes. Give us a small um, snapshot. Well, the most well, the first experience I had. We walked in at the first police station in Stoke-on-Trent, of all places, and declared a false passport, and and. Um, as you can and imagine... What, was pro- the pa- what passport did you have? It was a British passport. It was a British passport. Passport. Um, It was one of those old days with a husband and wife a picture in it. It's way before your time. And then they just replaced my picture. Yeah. With, with Anyway. But we declared it. And the first, if you like, culture shock. I nearly fainted. Actually, that was, I was closest to death then. Then Once you're in shock, when you escape, when you're through serious pressure, you don't have to time, time to think about it. You know, It's just after the backlash. But um, this uh, very friendly young policewoman in uniform in a police station came and smiled at me and said, «Would you like a cup of tea?» And that's when I thought I'd die. said, "This going to poison me." She smiles. I said, "This is it. Uh, this is it." So uh, I was convinced. But guys, I was convinced. Going to, she's going to kill me. And the way she smiled and no uniform police in Romania will smile at you and say, "Would you like a cup of tea?" Alice wants to kill you with a poison. Fantastic. And, and that was. It. And did you already speak English? No. I uh, and sadly because of the the, the false passport. Um, uh, our story was I had to go out to the press and I was in the press for about three months from Page News and we had the press conference a bit like this in the pub and um, of course I could well, some English but not much and this um, report of Run out of questions. So, what's your hobby? What was your hobby in Romania? And I said, rolling in a hay. <laughs> and so, bloody thing, collapsed into laughter. I had no
2: idea what I said. I was a child rolling in a hay. So, so ah, it's so, hysterical. My, the level what, of my English. I thought, <laughs> and what happened to
1: Steve? Mm-hmm. So, what happened to Steve uh well he got arrested he betrayed me he sold me he made money out of it he punched a policeman he went to, he went to jail oh, really? it was pretty serious because you see that's another th- sad thing about being an immigrant of being a young girl you can't kind of fodder really mm. for uh, you know for well if you're vulnerable you have no protection that there, there would be temptation there to be mm. used and abused and you know, luckily, by now, I kind of got used to running away, so I ran away again and I ran away again. And, um, yeah. And have you been back to Romania? Oh, yes, I have. Um, after 10 years of thinking I've never seen Romania again, uh, suddenly I went back because, well, I did some major contracts, work in London, big landmarks for the London Transport and for a British Telecom building. And at the, again, at the launch of that sculpture, I could see, I could spot a securitate man. This is in 88, from the Romanian embassy. And I, he could stick out. You could see he was a dodgy guy there. And um, and I was there with my husband, who just got married, and I was uh, 27, and he was 26, my husband, <laughs> an Englishman. And he obviously... Didn't understand what we were talking, and this official turned to me and said, "Is this your son?" And I said, "No, it's my husband, and he's one year younger." But I'm sorry, you know, is that so obvious? So he was so <laughs> embarrassed that he, because of that, God, he offered me a visa volanta, which is a visa to go to Romania without, you know, with, you know, with a refugee passport, and I got back and. August 89, got arrested again, but again I got arrested with a visa volanda but by well, fluke, anyway. I was on the night when the merchandise got here, and anyway, my friend who was supposed to go to the merchandise, she stayed up because of my arrest. They released me. And Sec- then I went back again on the eleventh of December, and I was caught by the revolution in Timișoara. So it's beyond, you know, you really couldn't make it up how I ended up in the middle of the revolution in, in Timișoara when Ceaușescu toppled. So yes, I was there, and for the last thirty years, uh, you know, it's um, a disaster in Romania, in Romania, in Romania. <laughs> because the security you know hijacked the revolution mm. and they still in power they changed the chameleonic chameleonic mm. colors and they basically mm. ruthless uh, corrupt uh, kleptocracy kleptocracy have got, I mean, yes. got so
0: many questions i think we'll come back to well but we're going to come i'm going to move to fabian and then we'll come back and i know that you i'm sure that you've got many many questions for her too, so for mariana so i'm sure we'll have an opportunity to ask lots Shortly, um, so Fabian, we've had a we've had a glimpse of Mariana's experience with borders, crossing borders, destroying borders, or trying escaping borders. And what's your what do you have do you have similar relationships with borders? Any of them? And how has it inspired not. your work?
3: Well, not at all. I think it's quite uh, hard to speak after <laughs> this. Uh, yeah, I have many questions too. After what you said, um, yeah, um, maybe I start the other way around where I am right now because I'm I'm doing a I'm a writer, I'm a composer, but I'm also doing a magazine, which is a, a very local project, because every issue is about one street in the world. But at the same time, it is a very transnational project, because we are trying to work beyond borders. We are trying to connect these places. So it's an interdisciplinary art project. We get involved, we spend a lot of time in different locations. And uh, from, from that project, I started to work a lot on um, stories of resistance. Right. Um, which kind of came upon by just listening and collecting anecdotes, meeting people. At some point, you end up. We work for like many months in one particular place, so it's very like hyperlocal concept. And at the end, you end up with these uh, these fragments, and you ask yourself, how how are they connected? How are we connected? How do we how do we tell the story? It's a question of storytelling, and in that, uh, the the aspect of resistance was kind of. Um, the, the, the key parameter how our cities are shaped but also how we can understand each other and how we can connect across borders so um, you probably want to ask what my personal um, I,
0: will, I want to ask I want to ask about your personal uh, how it yeah. all began but actually I also want you to do very quickly for me in fact I'm going to ask two things Christina Christina is going to introduce some visuals that, to accompany this but um, the other thing I'm going to ask is yeah. what is a flaneur what is a flaneur oh
3: Okay, we're starting there, yeah. yeah. Well, uh, well, we're now looking <laughs> at a magazine. Biology. Yeah, so the, 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 the name of the magazine is Flaneur. Um, for those of you that are familiar, it's actually also an, a, a word in the English dictionary, but it's a French origin, and it comes from 19th century Paris. It's basically a person that walks uh, in the modern city, um, but walks without an aim. So it is a person that is both the observer, but also, because in the modern age, Someone taking time, not having a direct goal, not going from A to B, becomes very quickly the suspect as well. So the fanur is a figure that is between being the observer and the suspect. It's also someone that is between watching and acknowledging what is about to vanish or what is about to disappear, at the same time being on the side of the avant-garde, being able to project into the future. Because when you know what's lost very well, you become also quite good at projecting. So there's a bit of an avant-garde twist in there. So I think a lot of the uh, questions we have towards these modern cities that we live in are somehow connected to this figure. So for us, it was more important, rather than looking at this historical figure of the flaneur, to ask ourselves, what are these techniques of flaneuring, of um, um, wandering without an aim? What are these different perspectives? If we not just Uh, let's say, um, look at one perspective, but as we do it, gather many different perspectives on the same place, Uh, we will quickly understand that there's no central narrative that is able to capture a place, but that we need all these contradictions and that in the end of the day, the modern city is a city of minorities, that the whole idea of the majority that is narrating from a centralized space what the place is, is completely contradictory to the very idea of it. And so... you see that you quickly come to a very critical point of view of watching the cities. And you you end up uh, not just seeing what is there, but also trying to unravel different layers, historical layers, social layers, and also seeing the power that the cities we walk in um, the power structures are very often disguised, you know. We all know the flaneur, for example, also knows that very well. There is the idea of the boulevard in many modern cities. We have these beautiful streets that are... There's the shops and there's like it looks like a place for the citizens, but initially the boulevard uh, means bollwerk, uh, it's a from the Dutch. It's a rampart. The boulevard is a rampart. Most of the major streets that were introduced in modern cities were having the functions of a wall. Right. And they still have that. There are still segregation lines. There are still lines of, uh, alongside which racism uh, and and uh, segregation within cities is organized. And uh, by taking the time of going like deeper into these places, we have a chance to uh, reveal that. We have a chance to also become aware of our own privilege because I was basically... Uh, my first memories as a child are those of... Um being in the long line of uh, gDR cars to the border, uh, I come from a small town that is was at the german German border, and uh, my mother was in the opposition against the dictatorship and the my entire like childhood narrative was really about uh, can can we go to the border when can we go to the border crossing the border and so um, although I was not directly affected um, um, because I was already going to school in a democracy still. They, they also didn't replace the teachers right away, so it's another story. But uh, uh, there, a, there was a great conscience of the privilege that, mm-hmm. I was, uh, that I have living in a democracy. Then, of course, being a white male that can freely roam the cities, etc. There's things you understand mm-hmm. later on. But I do believe that the the question is then, what do you do with that? And the decision of the magazine is to open that up as a platform that allows for contradiction and that allows for different voices to appear in juxtaposition. Not to say, that is we are the experts of that place, come, we're going to show you. No, but to get lost together and by that actually learning something that maybe is very uncomfortable, maybe goes into the darker layers of the place. It's not; it's not a Sunday walk for sure. Uh, it's not very sellable. It's not like a travel journalistic thing where you are like, oh, "This is the best coffee shop." And, uh, this is like you know. Normally, the cities, the tourist departments hate these magazines because they're like, "Ah, oh, it's all so dark and like com- complicated." And like,
0: so, so, talk about. So, you, but, so for also, example, give hmm. up you, you. were talking about the boulevard. So, you told me you, you you did the the ring in the you you walked the ring in Moscow. And yeah, devoted right. one issue to Flanner to that to the Ring in Moscow. The very this is the for those of you, those of us who've been to Moscow, it's the very uh, like four or five lane highway that run well road, but it's very thick that runs its way around central Moscow. Um, and how do you when you chose that that street? Uh, I guess what why why that street? But when you chose, it, what's your process like? Do you go off? Do you, do you knock on doors? Do you meet people? Do you like? Do you just do you run into people and hear their stories? How do you do it?
3: Um, not really knocking on doors, but running into people, meeting people over a long period of time. Moscow was uh, was a. I spent. I went to Moscow seven times over the last two or three years. I also wrote a book there and. For me, this street was fascinating because, as I said, the boulevard is this idea of the border that we're not aware of, mm-hmm. uh, and now there is the boulevard ring. That's the name of this. Uh, c- c- it's actually ten boulevards that are connected in a ring. It's not really a ring, but it's the idea of a ring. Mm-hmm. For me, it was really strong to have this concept because it is, there are two things in there. One is the, the, the military geometry of a city that we're not aware of, and the second thing is that there is the idea of harmony and unity and the idea of the ring very much. And both of them are a lie. Both of them are not actually, it's not a ring, it's not a boulevard, it's actually something in disguise, but it's trying to tell a different story. So my attempt of walking this was to like kind of slowly um, get behind this kind of... Um, narrative that has been established by the central power and try to kind of fragment it and try to include try to tell a story that is not coming from the already established canonical historic narrative for example but trying to try to hear many stories and try to kind of weave them into your own perception while you walk so that is the method of walking becomes a way of making letting things to become present, whether they are in the past, they are in your actual perception, or maybe they are future projections. They can, can become present, and they can all of a sudden uh, reveal what's what's going on there. And that is, uh, that is a long process, and um, includes many voices, many, uh, many months that I spend there, uh, and also it, uh, it is a collective process in, in the end of the day.
0: Yep you publish in english
3: it's english and the local language so each issue is depending on uh, uh, on the place uh, so the russian uh, moscow issue would be english and and do russian.
0: You, i'm just looking up at that page there is that is that english i can't quite see it's, Is that english yeah, well, it's and a, russian or is no, that no actually different?
3: it's a, it's now it's a little different now actually the the magazine becomes bigger and bigger now we're like <laughs> actually like this this kind of book size now it's kind of um,
0: what, what's that? Uh, uh, this is Fris de Mayo. So it's in Sao Paulo. That, that
3: was in Sao Paulo, yeah. But there, there was a. Um, uh, this is completely bilingual. In the beginning, we were still working with a booklet because we thought you could take it out and still see the visuals and kind of run through it. Kind of. I mean, each issue is completely different. There's a few issues up there. If some of you are interested to look at it later, uh, each issue is kind of also reaction to the place in terms of its structure, in terms of uh, the. the 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 concept of the magazine there's no set formula to make this there's no like chapters or like very often when artists start working with us they ask like these questions of uh, how many how many words how many horizontal pictures to have <laughs> like this kind of idea of like like how you work in journalism and i always say well you tell me uh, i don't know what your thought process is going to be like and i don't want to define it before you even have started to do this maybe you come up with nothing in the end and that's totally fine some of the most valuable contributors are invisible in these magazines because maybe they didn't um, end up producing something, but they were very important in the process. Maybe we became friends. Maybe we were uh, spending a lot of time together without producing. and That's that's also something. You meet someone not with the intention to already say, here's the deadline. These are the words. This is the what I want from you. Maybe I don't even know yet what I want from someone when I meet them. So well, all of that takes mm-hmm. time and I think that goes back to uh, time being that currency in modern, in the modern age, that uh, that's why we call it Plan-Earn, yes
0: Right. So I think we're going to, I'm going to, we're going to come back to um, ask a few more questions in a minute and hear a little bit more about about your work. Um, but I want to bring in Martin. Thank you. And um, we, when I started, when we started to talk, Martin and I about um, about getting getting into this conversation by talking about living living on the fringes of the, uh, the Iron Curtain. Uh, we Martin, started to share a story, a personal story, with me about your own version of this. Do you want to, do you want to expand? I, I would
4: very much like to. Uh, I'm, well, I'm very to conscious sitting here listening to the other guests, and, and, and I'm sure it's true of many people in the audience. When uh, anyone who's lived a life that involves crossing borders or living across borders, um, they will at some point be inconvenienced by the often well-meant question, where are you from? Where are you really from? What do you feel like? Uh, Sometimes it's not well meant. Uh, But I think all of us often has a a sort of short version of that, a sort of quick one-sentence answer just to put the question aside. So my short answer to that question is, I'm from Norway. I'm a citizen of Norway. I grew up in Oslo. My only citizenship is Norwegian. Uh, The slightly longer story uh, is that my mother is Polish. My grandmother was from Ukrainian. Uh, So I, I grew up with you know, bilingual, in a bilingual family, um, different, very different family histories. Um, one side in very safe, 1980s, 70s, 80s, Scandinavian social democracy. The other side kind of coming out from what the historian Tim Snyder calls the, the bloodlands of Europe with, with a very horrible, uh, history of the 20th century. Uh, but that family background meant that, uh, Throughout my childhood, I had a uh, a recurring experience of crossing borders, which was in one sense very mundane and in another sense, for me at least, very profound. Uh, And it was because every summer we'd go on family holidays to visit my family in in Warsaw. And uh, in the late 70s and the 80s, it was still quite expensive to fly. So we would pack up the car and drive from Oslo all the way down the Swedish west coast. That would take about a day and then take the ferry from the southern tip of Sweden to uh, the Polish Baltic coast and then drive, that would be overnight, and then drive the second day to Warsaw and then back again after a couple of weeks. Um, and that involved crossing two borders every time, the Norway-Sweden border and then after, after a sort of night of bad sleep on the ferry, arriving in Poland and entering, crossing the Polish border uh, in the port, um, and the difference between those two experiences marked me from very early on. The, the Norway-Sweden border, uh, well, it's not really there. It's the, the particular one that the route we took, there's a bridge that crosses a, a sound. So you see it physically because that, the border happens to follow the water. Uh, but there's no stopping. There's no sign of anything except that the, you know, the background color of the road signs changes color. Um So the Scandinavian countries have had passport-free travel since the 50s, I think, long before Schengen. But it was a sort of mini Schengen uh, long before I was born. So that was one border that I would cross very frequently. And it always gave me, even as a small child, this sense of exhilaration of just driving across. And now I'm in a different country and it took nothing. You can just do this. Uh, and then the Polish border would be slightly different. Uh, we would arrive, we'd get out of the ferry on the car and then stand in this car queue for three, four, five hours while various things were checked. The luggage was looked through. We'd obviously often bring... The economy was run to the ground in, in Poland at this time, so we'd often bring stuff. Uh, my mother was involved with the, uh, the Solidari- Solidarity Movement, which slowed us down even more, And there was a time she couldn't travel, she was locked out by this border. My father and I would travel uh, just on our own. Uh, This was after martial law in December 1981 for a a year or two. Uh, So there was this big difference, in, in a not terribly dramatic way, but just emotionally a very, very different experience of crossing from one country to another. Uh, and that was not the only difference. This was also an economic border between two very different economic systems. And it was quite easy even for a child to notice that economic differences have political consequences, moral consequences, consequences of interpersonal status, what you can do, what you cannot do. In Poland at the time, they used to have these, uh, these exclusive dollar shops, hard currency shops. Uh, the only people who could really shop there were either foreign tourists or, or Poles with foreign families who'd brought them hard currency or corrupt public officials who, who had access to the same thing. And this is where you could buy Lego, for example. This was quite important for me at the time. Um, and uh, it was very striking how yet another border, a big difference between me and anybody my age, a normal Polish child. Um, so, this stayed with me for very long. Now, sort of I now do uh, journalism, economic journalism i 'm a comment writer for the Financial Times. Um, and this sort of early childhood experience has really stayed with me uh, in how I look at I cover Europe a lot, uh, the various economic and political crises Europe has been going through. Uh, a couple of years ago, I wrote a book on the euro, a contrarian defense of the euro, because I thought everyone who was criticizing it had their arguments wrong. So I wrote a book about that. But in the, in the preface, uh, I mentioned not this story about crossing borders, but my mixed background. Uh, and, and I said, uh, you know, as a Norwegian, Norway has decided to stand outside of this European project. So as a Norwegian, I kind of have no stake in these debates. I'm impartial. I, I claim impartiality. Uh, As someone of Polish and Ukrainian ancestry, I just know very, very well how bad things can go uh, when European unity doesn't work. Uh, And that's why I do have a very strong stake in in the project and and what happens. But the two sides, both having crossed the borders but having lived or had experiences of both sides, uh, have been very deeply informative in how I look at what we go through these days, for example.
0: I think we're going to come back to that shortly, but I think we should have a bit more music. Laurie, Laurie,
5: what are you going to play for us? Um, We're going to play two songs, and the first one is a Greek song. And this is kind of about connecting these two songs because Jakovus is Greek from Cyprus, and uh, this song is about a Greek man who fell in love with an Egyptian woman and he craves her kiss and so it's about kind of the borders are meaningless for love and uh, the second song it's going to be an improvisation and I'm going to play um, a Slovakian traditional overtone flute it's a shepherd flute but it might come from Romania originally (laughs) it crossed the border border, yes and it becomes what's it it made out of? Um, I don't know if it's a cherry I think it's a cherry cherry wood and it doesn't have any holes except the one at the bottom and um, so it's about kind of with music we, we connect a lot as musicians we collaborate so we don't consider borders important and they become obstacles for us if you want to travel, for for work. And the other thing is love and and um, kind of relationships. They don't recognize borders. They don't need borders. I think. And how many how many languages do you sing in, out of interest? Oh, um, I think I tried to count it once. I think it's more than ten. Really? Phenomenal. <laughs> yeah, yes. So the first song is Mr. Lou.
0: was on stage with us and played throughout the evening. We've included here a small taste of their beautiful music and we'll play the piece in full at the end of this podcast. I'm going to slightly throw Martin in it here by without having asked him to prepare something already. Martin, give us a can you give us a kind of quick potted history of what it meant when, what it meant to Europe when the borders came down like 89 30 years ago this year. The borders well, I mean, the, the, the Berlin Wall fell, regimes changed. What did change? Did the borders? Did, what happened when the borders fell?
4: Again, I could give the sort of quick answer to park the question, but, but the interesting answer is that uh, the answer isn't the same everywhere, I don't think. Mm. And more than one thing happened. So, yes, the borders came down. And, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm of the generation that came of age... In 1989, with the end of the fall of communism, the united, the reunification of Germany and Europe, and globalization in general, right? The 90s, this this heyday of globalization. Uh, For for, for Eastern Europe, there was very much at the time a sense of, uh, of return to the West, right? Coming home. Or Central Europe, we should really say. It was Eastern only sort of by comparison to the West, right? But look at it geographically. It's Central Europe. Um, for the for the West, uh, and this is not just true of Western Europe, but the sort of transatlantic uh, Western world, it was obviously a moment of triumph. It was our system winning, and it was our system winning. Uh, so that was already a sort of slightly different perspective. Which, thinking back now, if you read someone like Ivan Krastev, for example, will point out that there was a sort of inequality, a seed of inequality, unequal status there, right? Which has grown and created some of the problems I think we see in in Central Eastern Europe today, with uh, with a sort of reaction against the West. But the other thing that happened um, was completely unrelated, and it was this these great acts of economic globalization that happened, in, particularly in Europe. So the single market was established in 1992. Right, it was sort of agreed in the late 80s. It started in 1992. Uh, The WTO was created, the World Trade Organization, Global System of Trading Rules, was founded in 1993. And on the other side of the Atlantic, the North American Free Trade Organization, Association, NAFTA, started in 1994. So you had all of these things happening at almost the same time. It's a huge opening, economic, personal, people could travel again. And we, we remember the optimism. And I think the optimism then were, was, uh, was correct. Um, we blew it, unfortunately, <laughs> but, but it was full of potential. Some of that potential has happened. And despite all the problems we have today, I'm you know, going back to my story of crossing the Norway-Sweden border. Uh, I today still get that same thrill when I travel. Well, come, traveling out of the UK, you have to show your passport. But anywhere else in Europe, you cross national borders and you don't show a passport. And uh, still, for now, the UK, but the rest of Europe, you, you go and work where you like, right? Uh, and the contrast still with traveling to the US, where you can't just go and work, right? But anywhere in Europe, you just go and you just do it. Um, that's there, and that's been one that's still there.
0: And is that, um, I mean, just just yeah. with that in mind, and thinking back to Mariana saying that really Romania in some ways hasn't changed it's still corrupt and problematic. I'm going to ask you a bit more about that in a minute. And and, and Fabian saying, oh, well, you know, ultimately these boulevards, they're still borders, effectively. Was it, are we? Are they, Are we? Is it, is, it, is it just that it's a superficial change, that ultimately none of those borders were, were removed? I mean, economically, suddenly, or, or we didn't need to show our passports as we moved in, but did, did the borders really go?
4: Well, I think you get the answer when you see what's happening, you know, right as we speak. Uh, we're People in this country are trying to reinstate some of the borders, just, even just economic borders, right? But maybe you know, migration borders and so on. Uh, there's a reason why Brexit was always going to be a nightmare, and it's because it's just awfully difficult to try to take apart what's already grown together. So the answer is yes, things changed very deeply, uh, and the, the chaos we see now is sort of a, a sad proof of how. How much borders actually did disappear? They, did, they didn't go away completely. Of course, there are still big differences, and it was always, uh, it was always wrong to think that the EU would somehow erase national differences and national characteristics and so on. Of course not, um, and that hasn't happened. Uh, but there has been real growing together of national societies, of national economies, uh, of, of national cultures, of. Uh, Of national self understandings, Um, and that's very hard to rip apart without a lot of pain, and that's what we're seeing now. Um,
0: Mariana, do you see borders still Uh, when you go back? Actually,
1: exactly. I was going to take up from what you just said now, because it's so interesting. We're we're seeing now in Europe, in England, with the Brexit, and in Romania. I just came back last week. It's a, it's almost an epidemic of nostalgia. It's not healthy okay, an unintended, unintended consequences of Romania being a locked-up country during dictatorship when people are not allowed to travel. It was basically like an open prison. It was a lovely country to be in, but you know psychologically you're not a free person, you're not a free agent, and you had to submit to a lot of humiliation and, and hypocrisy, and you had to lie officially if you wanted to stay alive. The all sorts of... Um, people are dehumanised under the boot of the the dictatorship. Yet, paradoxically, that situation itself created um, or or allowed people to bond together or created a special bond that they now all appear to miss it in Romania. I said, oh, where are the old days when we used to sort of, you know, play chess and, you know, the you know, in a concrete jungle of block of flats in the, 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 the outskirts of Bucharest or Arad or Amprom or whatever, and children used to play freely, and there was virtually no crime. You didn't have to worry about it. And the, you know, now the children are grown up, my age, and they say, "Well, where, where is that freedom? Where is that childhood?" Um, people used to fix each other's cars and build things together. You never had to look very far for a builder to help you with a chore or a DIY or something. Now, it's a nightmare. All the workers have gone away. The families are broken up. The children are... I can't even go into it because I'll burst out crying. What I've just seen now, the reality in Romania is dreadful. And when I when I said something to my friend, my lovely American friend here in England, about my concern about this mass migration and she said, oh, are you one of those Um, immigrants that once you got here you just lift up the ladder behind you and I said well yeah well even the word up you know like I'm not really that up I'm not really that high up where I am but I am grateful to this and I did try to go back by the way to Romania after the the revolution and they said you haven't they have a sentence "You, you haven't eaten soya salami because they were not, they didn't have meat, so they were given soya salami, and that is one of the biggest scars, psychological scars they they remember from dictatorship. Because That's today. I know, yes. but they <laughs> missed Sorry. that point. So Marianne, I, just,
0: I want to understand that. Just that you, 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 but you are not, you are not, you are no longer a true Romanian because you have not eaten soy salami.
1: Exactly, and I wasn't well professionally, and I'm, I'm, I don't, you know, to want. Where Exactly, who, who do you think you are? You just come back from london oh i 've done this and that in London, and now you come and you know take our daily bread, you know compete with us because you have an unfair advantage over us, and i wasn 't you know part of that bond that they had as fellow sufferers, so i wasn 't really welcome back as a visitor i 'm welcome'm I'm, I'm, they 're fine with me, but i don 't even think of going and Settling there, or or asking to be a member of the artists' union there, because they wouldn't like it. No, they still don't like it. I'm I'm more foreign to them. I'm not, actually I'm as foreign to them now as I am here. Right. So uh, in
0: between, you're somewhere sitting on that on that border.
1: Yeah. Well, yes. An invisible border. Yes, but uh, again, uh, and that's another paradox here. I from from my. Um, I'm on a fence, basically. Um, I have both experiences. Um, and my experience, personal experience, I would think would be valuable to both sides. Yet, nobody really identifies with me. So the Romanians say, well, I, ca- I cannot be in your group because you're not. You, you, I don't have shared experience with you. And well, uh, the English people say, well, you're Romanian. You can't possibly be like us because you're different. So... Uh, Um, question of belonging
4: but, but, but it's very easy for you to be with other people who have the same double or triple or quadruple experience even if it's different countries that's right,
1: right. yes Yes.
4: Yes. <laughs> so, so it's not so much about the specific countries it's about whether you've stuck in one whether you've stayed in one place and you're rooted in one place or whether you are somebody who yeah, floats or what's the well, verb that that's goes with the flaneur question. This is exactly that's why I'm
1: so interested in, in this but you see, there is a bigger question there. There is someone telling us we mustn't create have create a bond with our national identity as it's not fashionable anymore, and that is going fast. As you said, it, it's actually contributing to this globalisation, or the globalisation is contributing to this shoveling of a national identity. And yet, but we still want to belong. We st- there's no human being here. I'd like you to lift your hands up if you don't want to belong. We all want to belong to a group, to a society, to somewhere.
3: Yeah, but I think maybe it comes down to a question of storytelling in the end, because the Brexit clearly is, was a post-programmatic referendum. There's no program. Everyone's trying to figure out what the hell that meant. And, but still, there was a story, so there was no program. But a story. So what's the story? And I think there's a poison story because it's a very old one. It's the it's the it's a story of the nation but it of the nostalgia. Yes, exactly. About That's hit why I think you I like nostalgia. what you say about the nostalgia. I think yeah. that there's they're warming up an old story. The British Empire. Then. Uh, whatever, uh, that is the question we have to ask is, why, why, is it, why can you sell that story, why can you sell it to the same people that technically the empire never cared about in the first place and maybe that has to do with the, the free trade agreements, etc. that you're talking about from the 90s because I think we very f- ru- like fast developed and rushed into a fiscal union but at some point lost sight of the political unification process that's just way, way slower. And there was a time when, the, around the Lisbon Treaty, when I think everyone was like, "Okay, whatever. Let's just, you know, basically abandon the political process, but let's move on with the uh, with the, the fiscal process." And I think at some point there is a there is a gap now where there is um, there, there is the impression, no matter if that is right or wrong, that there is is beneficial for those that are profiting from that economy, but not for the others. And I think uh, we talked about it briefly before. It's quite interesting that the story that is told um, reaches quite far back, not only in Britain, but in a lot of right-wing movements that are not only trying to establish the national narrative from, like, reaching back to the 19th century, at least, but also a certain vocabulary that comes with that. So that is the whole, like, thing about, like, against the political correctness, etc. And I think it's quite interesting why, why is that possible, that they can, like claim that vocabulary again. And we, we, it's outrageous, but at the same time, we could also like be a little more um, self-critical and say, well, the left is kind of using like neo-Marxist, Marxist vocabulary from the 19th century, too. So maybe there is also a problem when we go back to the idea of storytelling. How do we address the issues of the 21st century and how can we do that, claim a story that is not basically a trap, which, which this one is.
4: I think storytelling is, is exactly right. Uh, but what story is it? It's a nostalgic story, for sure. It, yeah. the, the 1950s figures. And, but if you, if you look at the story that's being told, uh, you, know, that there is, you see how political correctness fits in, how identity politics fits in, how the culture wars fits in. But for me, the story is, at, at the root of it, uh, there's an economic story, and uh, you know, it's predictable because I write about economics, so that's obviously what I see. But here's one economic fact uh, that too few people are aware of, and it's this. If you look at pretty much every Western country, uh, from the Second World War till about 1980, differences between parts of the country grew smaller. So poorer places we're catching up with richer places. In particular, rural areas and small towns were catching up with the big cities. This is true pretty much across the Western world. From about 1980 or a little bit before, it's also true pretty much across the entire Western world that regional differences within countries started to increase again. It's also true in Central and Eastern Europe. These countries have been catching up on average with western europe through you know joining the eu and so on but within each country you've again seen uh, widening regional disparities now i think what we're seeing now strong movements pretty much everywhere for reinstating national borders uh, they're really a consequence of the uh, the development of borders inside of countries so it's borders that are first of all economic between Successful big cities and uh, struggling and falling behind smaller towns in particular also rural areas but largely the towns that used to host you know factory towns used to have a lot of industrial um, jobs uh, but that has led to economic differences but it also leads to differences in lifestyle differences in opportunities differences in culture and basically a, a widening widening difference of ways of living between liberal, traveling, successful people in the cities and struggling fewer people with fewer opportunities in the hinterlands um, but this also feeds into, this becomes cultural, right, when the economic differences are large enough and again I'm talking within countries you get cultural and political uh, sort of disaffiliation and I think one way of telling the story is that the people who've been at the bad end of this have you know, quite rightly said this national system isn't working for us anymore and we, we want to change it. Those other people who used to be our fellow countrymen and women are not loyal to us anymore. Now, I happen to think that this hasn't been caused by globalization to a large extent. That's a very small part of it. It's largely technological changes that means you don't, you don't need many factory workers anymore even if you hadn't outsourced some production. Um, So this would have happened anyway. But it's a very difficult political and economic policy problem that we haven't solved and that we neglected for very long and we're now paying the price.
0: It's a brilliant, it's a fantastic idea to think that we are, there are some of us who've been living, some of us within Europe who've been living on its borders for years, all this time, I mean, it's because of their economic, you know, it's a fascinating idea. I want to open up to um, to you all to see if anyone has any questions, points, observations, reflections, questions about Mariana's escape from Romania or more about flaneur. There's a there's a lady over there, Christina. Thank you.
2: Um, good evening, everyone. I'd like to, first of all, congratulate Dash Arts and uh, Rich Mix and everybody here tonight for attending an absolutely topical event tonight. And listening to a fantastic um, debate. Because in my opinion, I think um, this debate should not only be on live TV, it should be live TV (laughs) in the whole of Europe, a little bit like Eurovision. And the reason I say that is I think um, what I got from this conversation tonight is something that sounds like this. So I'm an immigrant and I'm on the border like Mariana. I've moved from one country to another and I don't belong to either. Yet... I feel I'm in the same camp as the people who are who have voted leave brexit because they are also on the border because they don't belong they don't feel they belong to this country anymore because the trickle down economics that was promised by whitehall and westminster and so many other people hasn't actually trickled down so therefore we are going to revolt but putting that aside i think it is down to artists and people who bring people together, to recreate a new narrative that unites people. Because I would like to ask each and every one tonight, how would you feel if the iron curtain, that big, thick iron curtain that was made of iron, that would never in a million years allowed me from Romania to marry my Belgian husband because I feared him and he feared me because I was a communist and he was a Westerner, if that would come back to Europe, how would we all feel as Europeans taking part in this debate on whichever side of the the Brexit vote we are and on whichever side of the regional perhaps borders we are in our own countries where we come from?
0: Thank well, you. I, I thank you. That's a beautifully, it's a beautifully made point. And before Mariana res- yeah, responds, I, give me one second. I want to say, I, I, and I'd love to hear your thoughts and maybe other people's. I, I was, I was, funny enough, I was in Belgium last week, and I, and I, met an academic who was telling me, was chatting to me about. It his big theory is urban studies and his big, his big theory are these sort of cities that, and the cities versus the, the rural, re- regional aspects. But he was saying he, one of the reasons why he thinks Europe or the EU has failed is because there is no cultural capital, there is no museum, there is no national, there is no European universities, there are no European libraries, there is no there's no one place that creates the story of Europe and makes people... Want to be feel like they 're part of something, and I think it speaks to the storytelling aspect and I wanted to you know hear your thoughts on that and presumably um, on Marianna responding as well
1: that just says martin 's you know quick answer to this is that uh, everybody 's job artists' jobs, and everybody here everybody 's simple uh, part to play is convert fear into love convert fear we all have that 's our if we if we remember to do this every day and convert the fear that separates us that that fear uh, is the one that divides people uh, with the narrative with whatever fear it's fear and and I, I that's my job when people fear me I said oh look we can be friends it's, I'm I convert all the time. And, but art as a centralised, big, powerful <sighs> propaganda art museum, tell your friends in Belgium, we don't need that. We need... <laughs> grassroots. everybody. I think you're right. I, I mean, you i, I, know, I, 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 I had I, enough of this centralised, big Tate, big art, big Guggenheim, everybody's telling there. You there to be. And then tell us what to do, the propaganda. We can all enjoy art and enjoy music. That music, wherever it comes from, it's our bond with each other and we, we don't need to go to the biggest top venues, big fat cats, big names, just <laughs> fall flat on our backs with whatever, fame. Uh, art is everywhere. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs>
4: I'd, I'd love to follow up because I, I agree. that I don't think there's a need to you know find some institutional way of telling the story of Europe because there are, there are many stories and there will always be many stories of Europe, millions of stories. Uh, but also because a lot of people already do feel this. How many people here were at the, uh, the march uh, on Saturday? Yeah. Yeah, I, figured, I figured it'd be quite a lot of people. Yeah. I, I didn't, I, but I did, I did go to the march a few weeks after the referendum, in early July 2016. It was the first time I'd ever seen British people hold up European flags. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, one thing that came out of the referendum was this sudden... You know, if this was sort of Marxist terms it would be a class awakening, class consciousness but it was sort of a European consciousness uh, because before I think most British people wouldn't even have dreamed of carrying symbols of the European project and even if they had they would have been too embarrassed to do it and now in in Britain of all places there are millions of people happily waving the, the blue and yellow star flag, right? So, so there are lots of people who join this here too. Uh, it's not about that, it's again It's about the divisions between countries, where, as you say, it's sort of fear, it's distrust and suspicion and lack of belonging together. And I think the mistake that we've made and have to correct, politically, psychologically, artistically, and probably also in terms of economic policy, is to act as if there is this uh, trade-off or opposition between belonging across borders, across national borders, belonging to the European project, so this is all the people waving the flags in the march, and belonging nationally, right? So we've allowed a sort of worldview to establish itself that you have to choose. Yes. And so people come down on two different sides. What we need is, is a political narrative, of course, of, of belonging, but also a politics and a policy, set of policies to promote belonging where you don't have to choose between belonging with yeah, your, your co-nationals that you, of course, have bonds with, as you said earlier on, and people across borders. That's that's the challenge. I think that's possible, but we have to start by saying that this is what we have to achieve and we've failed so far. I think it's um, there's two things that I
3: want to say. Um, first, I think you're totally right that this interpersonal level that you're speaking about is absolutely uh, important and valuable because it also basically uh, gives us a concept of why we don't need that central uh museum that would just be basically like copying the same mistakes of nationalism and try to establish yeah. something like a, a copy that on a European level it won't work and it will you know we end up in the same trap so uh, there, I always think that this these interpersonal uh, meetings and connections are, are the, the base and they're also to a very large extent already the reality uh, as we know uh, we talked about how different uh, wall, uh, walls fell and uh, Still, I think going back to what I said earlier about this vocabulary, I think we haven't really conceptualized what this project is. We haven't really found a way to speak about it. That's why the lack of um, success in in telling the the European project, project, because Uh, why are these old stories still around, these ghosts haunting us? That is because we haven't managed to tell a new story and we haven't found found the right words, but we also haven't found the right concept and something that is not a nationalistic concept, but that is exactly taking into account that interpersonal level, is exactly taking into account a fragmentation that can still exist in their differences without having to choose that identity you were speaking about, Martin, that can be, uh, we all, the, the bigger cities of Europe and the bigger cities of the world will be places, of, cities of minorities, where there maybe won't be the majority that we always like, have in mind. Now then, of course, that raises questions. How do you tell that story to someone living outside on the country? Maybe they have to, in a social, economical, or political way, be part of that idea of that place. Uh, how can we do that? How, uh, there are so many questions, but I think we should think of them uh, not as like, looking at what is successful with those like, right-wing campaigns and how can we kind of tap onto that momentum and try to like, talk about the European nation and build a big museum, because then we're falling right into that trap. We need to establish another vocabulary, another story, and it better be ready when the next bigger crisis hits, because what we have on the table right now is not very promising.
0: Um, any any uh, any more any more questions any more thoughts there's there's some there 's a question over here
6: hi there um thanks for uh thanks for everything um especially the music um I wanted to uh, sorry it 's a bit repetitive to bring up migration again um, I was going to maybe play a bit of devil 's advocate i mean personally i've always thought it's 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 a bit of a non issue if you certainly look at it from a Economically and historically, I think it's only four percent, less than four percent of people in the European Union take uh, advantage of uh, mobility for specifically labour labour migration, um, and that figure on a global basis hasn't changed over a hundred years. It's just the population. You're talking
0: about kind of inter, inter within the EU, my, my...
6: yeah. I mean, but I mean, you go back a hundred years and you take, for example, Romania. They were. Uh, significant numbers of uh, people of German origin in the likes of Sigiswara, I mean, a lot of uh, skilled craftsmen. Um, and that, as a percentage, that number just hasn't changed, despite the fact that you have nowhere near as much um, information asymmetry nowadays. You have the Internet to make it very easy to uh, to find out what things will cost you when you get to a certain place, what the labor market is like, what job openings are available. Um do you think it's quite strange that a lot of politicians have um, brought up the migration issue specifically now, when it maybe was not as prevalent 30, 40 years ago? When, if you look at it um, from a fact-based perspective, um, as a percentage of the global population, the number of uh, emigre, gastarbeiter, um, whatever the, the term is, in different parts of Europe, um, they've they've remained relatively constant. Is it is it just a deflection? And how come there's no Pushback from uh, centrist politicians on the issue.
0: Uh, Martin, do you fancy taking the response?
4: Yeah, uh, I mean uh, you're right that there was, of course, uh, a similar rate of uh, migration and other forms of globalisation a uh, hundred, a bit more than a hundred years ago. After it stopped with uh, with the First World War, uh, but it is true that the middle of the twentieth century saw a sort of dip uh, compared to what had become before and what was going to come after. Uh, I don't think it's at all surprising that politicians pick on immigrants. You know, why, why wouldn't they? Uh, it's very easy. It's an easy political strategy. Regardless of whether you think that immigration brings economic challenges for some or not, I think they tend to be exaggerated. But it is a fact that there have been groups in most Western countries that have had a bad deal in the last 30 years. Uh, I think those, the causes of that are mostly homegrown, uh, but what we do know, you know, sort of common sense about the human psyche, but also you can look at the social psychology and you can look at history and so on. When people are under stress, under pressure, they become, you know, they, they serry their ranks, they turn themselves against outsiders. These are sort of standard patterns. And of course politicians will play into that if they see electoral advantage. So it's not surprising. Um, but it's also not obvious what you do about it. Well, one thing... Uh, you should do is to try to make whatever economic problems are there, solve them as much as you can. So, so One example I like to bring up is comparing the UK and, uh, and Norway since 2004. So 2004 is when the Central European countries joined uh, the EU. Since then, Norway has had a higher rate of immigration from Poland and similar countries, if you do it as a share of the population. Uh, than the than the UK, there's been a lot of immigration into the UK, from from the accession countries as they're called, Polish builders and so on. But they've been even even more proportionally into Norway, and yet you've had much less of a backlash politically in Norway than in the UK. I believe one reason is that in Norway they chose policies to prevent downward pressure on the lower end of wages. There were policies to universalise wage bargaining outcomes for example so that cleaning wages wouldn't fall too much those options those choices weren't really taken in this country uh, and I think you get the result that you get in in part because of those domestic economic policy choices
3: but also I, I think we shouldn't make the mistake not not saying that you, that you do that but I'm just saying that uh, the reason why those strategies are picked up obviously also because the story we're talking about has always been based on exclusion and is Go, leading right back to the colonial practice and right back to the xenophobia and racism that that very empire is based upon. So the, that audience has a, is quite trained at, because you said like, oh, that's an easy political, is an easy political thing to do. It is because it's, it is established. It's in the very foundation of this country and most of the European countries. And that's why it works so well. We're talking about the uh, the exceptionalism of Britain or we're talking about the British Empire or whatever, take back control. All of these are like xenophobic, racist concepts that have been established over centuries and that can be easily picked up uh, no matter, absolutely, despite of any factual references, any time, because the audience is listening and the audience is just trained in... Accepting these kind of uh, these kind of uh, premises, which the, 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 these countries have been built upon. Now I'm
0: going to draw a halt to this yeah. conversation. I'm going to give us some love in the room by um, <laughs> by bringing in Laurie okay. and Jakobos <laughs> to play, <laughs> play to play a, la, a play their last song. But before we play out the podcast with music, we wanted to thank our wonderful speakers, Mariana and Martin and Fabian, our audience in the Goethe Institute and Richmix for their support. I completely loved listening back to this podcast in July 2020 as we all slowly emerge from the spring lockdown and borders start to open again between countries. When we pulled together the Dash Cafe in 2019, the immediate borders we were facing in the UK were our self-imposed Brexit borders. Over the last few months, I've found borders everywhere and my panorama has shrunk. I absolutely appreciated Fabian's love letter to walking and listening and absorbing diversity in our local environment. So, rather than play the actual last song that that Laurie and Jakovos played on that night, we've decided to close the podcast with the full version of the beautiful Miseleau, which Laurie introduced earlier, and which some of you might recognise as the original version of the song from the opening titles of Tarantino's film Pulp Fiction. We hope you enjoy it the team behind the dash arts podcast is me josephine burton christina catalina and natalie you can find more episodes wherever you get your podcast or by going to our podcast section on our website dasharts.uk if you like the dash arts podcast follow the show share and please leave us a review it helps us stay visible and would mean the world to us i'm josephine burton and we're taking a much needed summer break, but we'll be back in September with more conversations at the Dash Arts podcast. Thank you for listening. <laughs>
7: Aghiya <laughs> habibi akh ya lalelia Tad I thought I'm off. My life refkes i